0: Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Replacement Level podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. I'm thrilled to be joined right now by Bill Petty. Bill is a writer for Fangraphs and a regular contributor to Clubhouse Confidential. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Bill Petty. Bill, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Absolutely.
1: Thanks for having me, Ross.
0: Bill, we're going to talk about some advanced metrics in a bit and why they matter. But before we do, tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place.
1: Well, that's actually pretty easy. Um, uh, I was, uh, I guess, probably seven seven or eight years old um, in 1985, and uh, my dad exposed me to the New York Mets, and, and what really, I guess, focused me in on baseball was Dwight Gooden. Um, This was, you know, his second year in the league. Um, 85 was his just magical season when he won the Cy Young, just put up some incredible numbers. And um, I can remember starting to watch TV broadcasts and start, you know, hearing the announcers talk about his curveball, referring to it as Lord Charles. Um, And it was just something so dynamic and, you know, I I hate to sound too cheesy, but magical about, you know, every time he stepped on the mound. Um, and, And so that just pretty much got me hooked right there. And then, of course, the next season, they won the World Series and, you know, in an in incredibly dramatic fashion. And so, you know, as a young, impressionable, uh, you know, 8 nine-year-old kid, I thought, well, this is great. Um, Baseball is a phenomenal sport and the team that you root for wins just about it. You know, they win right away. They win every year. And so <laughs> you know, what could be better? So that that pretty much hooked me in right there. That's interesting. We're
0: the same age, and I'm a Red Sox fan. So, one of my first impressions of baseball is this makes adults sad. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's fun. It's funny. I always tell uh, when people I, I, you know, I grew up with a lot of Yankee fans and you know, obviously a lot of other folks I've, I've met in my, uh, you know, my life. And you know, whenever I, nowadays, when I say I'm a Mets fan, they say, oh, I'm so sorry. And, you know, it's, it's a shame you'll pass that down to your kids. And I say, you know what, though, it builds character. Uh, I just I happen to come in at the wrong time where I, my expectations were set way too high. <laughs> so, but for the rest of us and the rest of your life, it builds character to be a Mets fan.
0: We both obviously grew up, given our age, with wins and RBI. When did you make the shift and uh, focus to advanced
1: metrics? Yeah, for me, it was very, very late. Um, I I came to uh, I, you know, sabermetrics are really just, you know, sort of advanced analytics in baseball at very, very late. And uh, I say that compared to some of the folks that, uh, I've become, you know, colleagues with, and, um, you know, so just some phenomenal, um, you know, younger writers, you know, even as young as 16 who just do some phenomenal work, um, with analytics. And for me, I mean, I was, gosh, I was probably, um, in grad school, uh, when I finally got around uh, to reading Moneyball and really got exposed to things that were outside of um you know what I grew up with, which was the back of the baseball card um, and for almost you know geez i guess uh twenty five twenty six years that's all I really knew um, and that was fine i I, I thought I kind of knew the knew the game and understood the game really well uh, I, I had a good friend of mine a couple of years older than I was and We'd have conversations and it was it was it was funny. He it, it almost was as if he assumed, um, and I don't know if it was a compliment or not, but he assumed that I was in the know just like he was. <laughs> so he'd he'd kind of make hints about, you know, Billy Bean and this and that. And I I you know, I I didn't want to seem like I was so far out of the loop. I'm like, Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> and I uh, I didn't have a clue. Um I, I really didn't understand what he was hinting at. And so it took me a while, but eventually i picked up moneyball um and then from moneyball i picked up you know baseball between the numbers and little by little um in my late 20s i really started to come around and so i started reading you know beyond the box score i started reading baseball prospectus um and little by little it, this whole different world started to emerge to me and i said oh wow i've i've been missing a whole lot, you know, in my, uh, you know, in my later years. Um, and it really wasn't until just, you know, about two, two and a half years ago where, you know, I, I began any kind of real in-depth study of advanced metrics and really write, doing my own research and writing about it. So I, I was very much a late bloomer, but, um, you know, really just kind of upended my entire world. And, you know, and like I said, what I was used to, which was that back of the back of the baseball card which is your 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 average home runs and rbis and and runs scored and that was kind of it
0: yeah and it's back of the baseball card and that's also still the primary numbers in fantasy baseball i know those are the there are more advanced leagues and some leagues use you know more advanced numbers but for the most part you're looking at average home runs runs rbis and stolen bases and saves are just as important as a home run and it's fantasy baseball is fun But it's not necessarily a reflection as to uh, great measures of players on the field.
1: And and fantasy baseball is something where... um, uh uh, it was for me it was a little bit of a gateway where yes it was very traditional metrics and um, you know in the leagues at least that i was playing in they weren't that advanced but the desire to not stink <laughs> at the game the <laughs> desire to be competitive um, i think it, for me it, that was also part of the gateway which was you know the idea of actually doing my own analysis downloading you know downloading as much that's what first kind of brought me to baseball reference years ago which was wow i can actually get my hands and all this data, and then, you know, run my own analysis and see, you know, uh, you know which players, you know, accumulate the most, uh, the best counting statistics, but also what players are cu- accumulating them at the best rates. And so, I mean, that seems really rudimentary. But again, for me, this was, you know, I was somebody who was studying social science and applying it in a very different setting, but never had kind of tried to take a very analytical approach to something like baseball. And so, so fantasy baseball, for me, I, I didn't play it that much, but I got tired of kind of getting getting whooped. And and again, that was sort of the next you know, step for me into dabbling with the data myself and and playing around with different formulations and um, you know a lot of really crappy metrics at the time, but it was it was a start. It was a way for me to start kind of you know I think changing my mindset. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, fantasy baseball. I think um, there's a lot, you know certainly there's a lot of leagues out there where you're getting more advanced metrics, um, trying to get those into the mix. But um, I, I like fantasy baseball in general, because like anything else, um, it does make you think it does force you to kind of sit down and do your own analysis. Um, and, you know, to me, that's also sort of a, a, a pathway into, you know, turning the corner on some of the, uh, the, the standard metrics and thinking about how you can maybe look at the game or analyze the game a little differently.
0: Well, let's get into some of the advanced metrics. Let's start with batters. When you're evaluating a hitter, what numbers do you look at first and why?
1: I like to start at a, at a really, really high level, and you know, the, the the number for me that's the most convenient to look at to get a, a good overall snapshot of a player's offensive ability is is weighted one runs created plus, um, and that's a statistic that um, you know we uh, carry obviously at FanGraphs, um, and it, I like it because it, it it gives you a really good snapshot of how good of an offensive player somebody is in terms of what they do at the plate, and then compares that to how they perform relative to the rest of the league as well as adjust for their ballpark we know that you know the kind of offensive environment you can have can vary in some cases quite dramatically from year to year and even from the American League to the National League and so that adjusting for that context is really important and so what weighted runs created plus does that for you so again real quick snapshot of of that but then it also accounts for park Um, again we know can be very you know your offensive performance can uh, vary drastically depending upon your home ballpark. And so I like that uh, metric because it gives you a total look at somebody's offensive production, but it takes into account the you know, two of the biggest pieces of context that we know can, uh, can impact a hitter. Um, so that gives me that nice jumping off point, but then you don't just want to rely on one thing. And so for me, I always like to then dive down and say, okay, let's go to the next level um, down and say, you know, this is somebody who avoids outs really well. Um, what's their on-base percentage look like? Um, what kind of power do they produce? So I look at things like isolated power. I also like to look at home run to fly ball ratio. Um, and I think, you know, combining those two things together, um, you know, helps to put their, uh, weighted runs created plus into context. Um, From there, though, I think, and more and more recently, I'm uh, I'm more interested in in what you might call process statistics. Um, So these are things like basic plate discipline that we're getting now. So you don't just want to look at walks. You don't just want to look at strikeouts, but you want to look at, you know, how is a guy approaching each at bat? Um, Are they swinging at a lot of balls outside of the zone? Do they make more or less contact on balls that are in the zone? Um, What's their what's their whiff rate? And, you know, you know, that can get you even more granular and help you give a set, get a sense of, um, well, I see the kind of statistics and the kind of production this guy's putting up now, but are there issues with their process where maybe, um, uh, not to say that the production is hollow, but it may not be something that they can continue down the road. Um, so it, it, to me, I kind of like to step down a ladder, um, but Weighted Runs creator Plus for me, That's the, that's the go-to. That's the easiest, simplest. You want to get a quick look at somebody, that's the one to look at.
0: Tell me why you prefer... RC plus to OPS plus.
1: OPS plus isn't bad necessarily. Um, it really just comes down uh, to me. I think more to just an accuracy standpoint. Um, in many cases, those two metrics are pretty tightly correlated. So you don't typically end up with a guy that's got a really high OPS plus, but a really low weighted runs created plus. Um, but when you think about what OPS is doing, you know, it's just really just more technically accurate to look at the weighted runs created plus because OPS plus is it you know has a couple of problems. One. OPS is just you know one statistic and another statistic added together, but they aren't necessarily equal statistics. They've got different denominators. If you're looking at on base percentage, the de- denominator there is plate appearances. If you're looking at slugging, you know it's it's at bats. It's very you, you, it, mathematically you shouldn't just be jamming these things together. Um, but also if you think about OPS plus, um, you know you're going to count a walk the same way as a hit. And we know from all the work that's been done by many people, you know, throughout the last 20, 30 years, and, you know, really Tom Tango sort of popularized it, I think, the most at this point, um, the linear weights approach, where we know that from a run expectancy standpoint, a walk is not the same thing as a hit. Um, You know, they're close in many cases, but they're not identical. Um, And we also know that a home run is not technically worth four times as much as a single. Um, You know, when you think about slugging in OPS, um, it's not... Not runs, you know. It's OPS isn't taking isn't trying to convert everything to runs, but a home run essentially is worth you know four total bases, and a single is worth one. But in reality, from a linear weight standpoint, a single uh, is uh, a home run is worth about three times as much in terms of run production or run expectancy than a single is. So you know, from a technical standpoint. You know, I like it because it's more accurate. Um, but at the end of the day, you're not gonna go wrong if you look at somebody's OPS plus and drastically uh, you know, be off on, on how talented a person is. It's it's just more about we can we can be more precise, so why not be more precise?
0: That's right. In OPS and OPS plus Combine two important statistics, but they combine two flawed statistics in on-base and slugging percentage. It tries to correct the flaw in each statistic, and it kind of works. So we're like, oh, it mostly works, so that's okay. Right. And the differences between OPS plus and RC plus are very slim. Oftentimes, even though they're calculated differently... It's this identical number, so it's not like people, if they're saying, "Hey, guess what? Albert Pujols has a good OPS plus; he's a good hitter." They're not wrong. It's just more accurate to
1: use runs created plus. Exactly, and I think it's it comes down to one of these. These, you know, one I almost think you should applaud OPS plus, right? Because as much as we can tear apart the you know the mathematical issues with it, um, amazingly enough, it's pretty much it's pretty much right on. It's it's you can't go all that wrong with it. So to me, I I almost want to tip my cap to it. Um, But it also seems like it's been easier for folks to digest um, folks that aren't, uh, you know, who don't like to get as, as as into the weeds as many of us do around some of the more advanced statistics, um, you know, on base percentage has made its way, I think, into you know into the mainstream for the most part. Slugging is not a really radical idea; it makes a lot of sense to people to value slugging. And then, you know, the easiest way to calculate OPS is we just jam these two things together. It's like, oh, okay, I can do that. Most people, you know, don't have a problem with that. Now the you know, park effect in the league of, you know, the league, um, like a correction is something that most fans won't do, but I think it's OPS plus I give it credit because I think it can more easily begin to, we, we, you know, we talked earlier about gateways. It's something that can easily be a gateway for a casual fan. That's already on board with on base and slugging into the realm of more advanced statistics that says, Hey, context is King. It's very important. So you got to take into account a guys park. You got to take into account if they're in the AL, the NL, for example. Um, So, you know, yeah, it's technically incorrect to some degree, but you're kind of getting at the same thing, um, you know, in a crude way, but one that I think can also help bring more people people along to the ideas of more advanced statistics.
0: Let's move over to Babbitt. I think Babbitt is uh, valuable to look at, very valuable at times, but I also think it's one of the misused statistics out there. First, let's talk about it. Let's talk about batting average and balls in play. Let's talk about what it measures and we'll take it from there.
1: BAPIP is something where, uh, I think a lot of people have, uh, you know, tried to leverage it, uh, in various ways over the past couple of years, uh, it, both in, in good and bad ways. Right. Um, you know, the idea behind BAPIP is you're trying to get a sense of, you know, how often, uh, uh, uh you know, when a ball is put into play, uh, it failed, you know, a, a batter feel fail, fails to make it out. Um, and there's a lot of different applications for that, right? You, you strip home runs out, you're just looking at a ball hit into play that stays within the ballpark. Um, and then, you know, it, I think it was made most famous, uh, and the impetus behind it, um, by Voris, McCracken and other folks that were looking at this idea of, you know, defense independent pitching or fielding independent pitching. Um, so, you know, this idea that once the ball is put into play, whether or not that ball is converted to an out, unless it leaves the ballpark is primarily a function of the quality of the defenders on the field. Um, and so, you know, we tend to very easily fall into, well, um, you know, if a batter has a really high BAPIP, um, one that we know is vastly, uh, you know, higher uh, than league average and what we know historically is the league average. Well, that's just, you know, that that's just one season's worth of really good luck. And so we shouldn't expect that BAPIP to be the same, to be the same measure the next year, and therefore that batter's performance is likely not going to be the same the next year. And so we should expect them to regress to some degree. Um, same thing with a pitcher. We assume that if a pitcher has a really low BABIP, well, that's not the pitcher. We know that once you put the ball into play, it's out of his hands. So that's all in their defense. So you really don't want to put a whole lot of stock in, in the pitcher's BABIP. Um, and, and I think we're, we're getting smarter about this. Um, there's a lot more work that's being done that teases out the fact that, well, you know, no, pitchers do have some control over, uh, you know, what happens when the ball is put in play in terms of quality of contact and things like that. So you don't always assume that a pitcher with a low BAPIP is just, you know, benefiting from some really good luck. Um, Same thing with the hitter. Um, You know, if if the, the league average BAPIP is 300, well, that means that there's guys that, you know, career wise are higher than 300 and there's guys that are lower. So we shouldn't always assume that, um, you know, uh, high BAPIPs are just a function of luck. At, At a certain point you have to stop and go, well this guy's a, you know, career 340 BAPIP hitter for the past 8 seasons. I don't think we should expect, expect a massive regression anytime soon.
0: That's right. And my problem with with it was always how it was used solely to determine luck. And I think luck plays a huge part in baseball. It plays a huge part in all sports, perhaps more than we want to admit or more than we realize. But it's not just luck. Luck has something to do with it, but I don't think it's the entire story. And I think that at times it's presented that way, and that's where my problem is.
1: Well, I, I think it's also a function of, you know, what are the tools that we have at our disposal, right? Because, um, you know, to a certain extent to this point in time, we're dealing with box score data. And so we can calculate something like BAPIP and we can see what the, you know, the league average looks like and how people tend to regress. And so it we don't really have as good of a sense of um, what the quality of contact actually was. So to your point, it may be that a guy got lucky, but it could also be that a guy has a really good year. He's hitting the ball on the nose, you know, more times than not, right? He's hitting a lot of line drives. He's um, hitting the ball in such a way where regardless of the fielders, in the positioning of the fielders, he's increasing the odds that the ball goes in for a hit. And, and that's something, again, I think, you know, it, it, people, I think, are starting to, to recognize that. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of work done around, you know, when when statistics stabilize, you know. So, you know, Russell Carlton did that, you know, that groundbreaking work a few years back and found that, you know, for him in his original study, I think he was only looking at a, at a season's worth of data and said, BAPF doesn't stabilize over a season. Um, you know, I don't, you know, it, it's not something that seems to stabilize very quickly, um, Derek Cardy at Baseball Prospectus updated that, and I think when he did it, he found that it takes a couple of seasons for that particular statistic to, to stabilize to a point where if you're trying to really understand the true talent of somebody's uh, ability, um, you know, for their bat ability, you have to, you know, you only have to add in. Uh, half of the plate appearances from uh, the league average. So you still have to regress them to some extent, but you're only regressing half to league average and not more than that. So we're getting better. For me, I think that we'll learn a lot more about BABIP when um, we've got more access to things like hit FX. So the kind of sensory type data that we're getting from pitchers, when we have that for hitters. So you can understand what is the bat speed? What is the exit velocity? What is the launch angle of certain types of hits? And what is the likelihood of um, those types of hits um, you know, land, you know, avoiding outs? I think we'll learn more about it. And so like anything else, you know, that the the idea and the philosophy behind BAPIT will evolve. My concern is that sometimes we we have these findings and we assume that it becomes that it's it's very settled. Right. There's no way we're, you know, that's, that's the finding of BAPIP and we can all move on. Um, in almost every area, baseball or otherwise, you know, when you, when you, ha- uh, you know, have new methods of data collection and new things to measure, um, not every time, but oftentimes, you know, previous, uh, you know, ideas and theories can be overturned. And it's just because, well, not, you know, this is data we didn't have access to before. And so we can run even more rigorous tests and just learn more about the subject. So um, I think, you know, when you see any kind of abnormal or outlier type of BABIP, it shouldn't automatically mean that it was luck, but it should make us ask the question, right? So, if you see a guy who's got a high hip, don't just assume that it's luck. Look at their career. Look at how you know. Look, look at their quality of contact. Um, like with anything else, if you're only looking at one statistic and then just d- deciding from that one statistic the quality of a hitter or the quality of a pitcher, you're doing it wrong. You've you've always got to ask the next question and look for confirmation from a couple of different places. What metrics do you think are getting misused? Uh, it's going to seem like a weird answer, but I, I would say all of them. <laughs> and I say that not, not because I think every Tom day...
0: Tango said the same thing. So there you go.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, cause to, to me, it's, 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 it, I mean, everything has the, the the potential to be misused either in an intentional way or an unintentional way. And, and I'll be the first to raise my hand and say, I guarantee if you go back and read some things I've written, I've used statistics in the wrong way. I've misused some things. Um, there's a you know famous saying that, you know, I constantly hear all the time because people, Know that you know I've become someone who's been uh, you know very involved and spends a lot of time in, in statistics and baseball analytics. And they always like you know in, in people who are a bit more skeptical of statistics. They always trot out the old lies, damn lies, and statistics line. Um, you know, and my answer for that is always, well, you know, statistics don't lie, people do. Um, but I would even I would even you know p- people lie with statistics. Statistics are neutral; they're just numbers. But I think I could even you know I've also come around to the idea of softening that, which is. You you know, it's not even that people have to have an intent to lie or an intent to misuse. You know, sometimes we just don't understand something that well, or we haven't really thought through the underlying mechanics uh, of certain types of metrics, or you know, and, and and you know, things of that nature. So, you know, I think in any situation, if you're not informed, or and or you're not careful, any any of our statistics can can be misused. Batting average can be misused. ISO can be misused, even weighted runs created can be misused, war can be misused. Um, you know, so for me it's it's not that there's any one that I think is getting misused more and more. I think they go through cycles. I think, you know, BAPIP certainly is one that goes that, that I think is maybe a hot one right now where it seems to be the one that people glom onto and kind of throw it at everything, and maybe they're misusing it or just using it in a careless fashion. But BAPIP may be the one today, but tomorrow could be something else, it could be home run to fly ball ratio, and then the day after that. All of a sudden, we could find people misusing WOBA, but because maybe they, again, just you know haven't done enough research on it to really understand its mechanics and how it works. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily think they're, you know, uh, and you know, maybe I'm just getting you know softer as as I get older. But uh, I think it's sometimes just honest mistakes that people make um, that we can all make when we just kind of go too fast and uh, and maybe get too excited about a finding or a statistic. So, um, you know, I, I if you had to press me on it I'd say BAPIP is probably the one today I still feel like is is misused or maybe um you know misunderstood the most at this point um but I I think any one of them on any particular day has the potential to be misused
0: let's shift focus to strikeouts hitters are striking out at record rates and I guess the real question is does that even matter Is it worth the risk of striking out more if that means a player will hit more home runs?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question because this is uh, when you hear people talk about the debates between kind of old school and new school, um, you know, know, statistics, but also just strategy and approach to the game. It's not just on base percentage. You know, that was the original, I think, sort of lightning rod. But this issue around strikeouts has become one. Um, And the way that I look at it is um, it really depends on the batter. So. We know from, again, all the great data that we have and the great research that on average, power is associated with a higher strikeout rate and a higher whiff rate. So it stands to reason that you're going to have uh, power hitters, particularly in this day and age, who are also going to have pretty high you know, strikeout rate. Not everyone, you've still got some of those you know, rare examples of guys that have got great plate discipline as well as the power, but on average, that's the relationship. And so, it, and that kind of makes sense, right? If you, if you're a guy who's gonna whose game is built around power, in most cases, power is generated uh, from you know what you might call you know full swings, full swings. You're committing to that swing, you know, more often than not. You're not you know thinking about controlling your bat and spraying the ball the other way, fighting off a pitch. You know, you're really trying to drive the ball and accumulate as many bases as you can per you know per per plate appearance or per at bat. So that's going to lead to. You know more strikes. You know the inability to hold up on on check swings and things like that. Um, now. If you are a hitter that has great power potential, then the trade-off likely makes sense. But if you're not somebody who has great power potential, where you know the number of strikeouts that you have to stra- sacrifice for each for each additional home run um, is really high, then it probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so, you know, again, I think this is one of those things where you can't make a blanket statement that you know uh, you know more strikeouts are okay because you sacrifice for power. It's always a, it's an issue of magnitude. Well, how How much power am I gaining for increasing my strikeouts and therefore, um, you know, how many actual runs am I am I going to create more or less depending upon if I strike out more or, um, you know, if I, you know, if I strike out less. A hypothetical actually ran through, um, you know, just doing some really quick back of the envelope math. Um, Let's assume that you're a guy who's a really high um, balls in play. You've got a really high batting average on balls in play. Say, you know, you've got a lot of speed, you hit a lot of line drives. Um, you're a 340 Babbitt player. Um, but you strike out 20% of the time and you walk about 10% of the time. Let's assume that hitter never hits a home run, right? So this is kind of like a Luis Castillo type of guy, right? Like this, this guy's not putting the ball out of the ballpark. You know, that hitter is going to have about a, 200, a 264 average and a 338 on um, base percentage. But if they cut their strikeout rate in half, Now they go to a 300 average and a 374 on base percentage. That's a huge difference. But again, I think it depends upon the kind of player. For that kind of a player, it makes a lot of sense. If you're a guy that doesn't have a very high BAPIP, you're very you're slow, you're lumbering, um, and again, you're just much more of a fly ball hitter, then it probably makes sense to try to take advantage as much as possible of the fly balls you hit. So that's where power and distance becomes more important than just putting the ball in play. So you know, you're going to naturally have a lower BAPIP, so you can sacrifice some of those strikeouts, you can sacrifice some of those balls in play, in an attempt to make the most out of the balls that you can put in play and, in some, and hopefully in some cases increase the number of balls and balls that are out of play, that do go over the fence. Um, so uh, like with everything else, I think it's going to depend upon the hitter. And that's where, you know, when you think about how do you apply this type of thinking in the front office and in player development, I mean, that's an easy way, right? It, you know, front office and coaches getting together saying, what is, you know, and scouts saying, what is the true skill set and the true potential of these players in terms of how they hit the ball, the kind of contact they make, how they're going to play. And let's try to coach them in terms of their approach to at the plate. Based upon where we think they'll get the most leverage. You know, it's never a one size fits all, but I think, you know, that this is one way where you can kind of make that type of trade off.
0: You're listening to Bill Petty. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Bill Petty, P E T T I. Bill, let's move over to pitchers. When you're evaluating a pitcher, what numbers do you look at first and why? Uh,
1: pitchers, me, I'm I'm in the, I guess I would say, sort of the, you know, the, the fielding independent camp, um, not in terms of, you know, ignore ERA, ignore BABIP, and only look at fielding independent pitch, you know pitching statistics. But for me, if I'm going to look at what a pitcher can do first, I do want to look at what do I think they have the most control over, and kind of go from there. Um, so strikeout rate, um, walk rate, um, home run rate. But for me, really, it's that home run per fly ball in particular. Um, that's what I want to look at. And then from there, I also want to look at things like their um, you know park and league adjusted ERA as well as their park. League-adjusted FIP. Um, just like with hitters, I want to get that context. I want to understand, um, you know, how well these guys are doing relative to the league, but also relative to the parks they're playing in. Um, obviously, home runs. You know the the degree to which you give up home runs on fly balls is a huge impact that you can get from the ballpark that you play in, for example. Um, But you can also get some differences in your K and strikeout, your your uh, strikeout and walk rates based upon the park you play in as well. It's a little bit more muted, obviously, than home runs, but there is still an effect there. So um, I always want to get that high-level snapshot of how's you know how does this guy look in terms of those statistics we know they control the most themselves. Relative to the park they play in, and relative to the uh, relative to their league, um, from there though, I then like to again take that step down. So. You're getting a lot of strikeouts, but how many bat, you know, how many bats are you actually missing? Um, so it's it's hard to have a high strikeout rate if you've got a low whiff rate, but at the same time, I want to understand are you generating mm-hmm. most of your strikes from missing bats, or you know, are you a guy that just has really good command in the zone? And, and if that's the case, what's the velocity look like? You know, are you somebody who's a bit more of a soft tosser who control is incredibly mm-hmm. important for you and, and mistakes can can really hurt you? Or are you a guy that's got a tremendous amount of velocity because we know how much of an impact Velocity can have on on overall performance. And then from there, it's just like the hitters. I want to keep digging into process. Um, You know, one of the great things about pitch effects is we can really dig down into a pitcher's process. We can look at what is their pitching repertoire? What's the velocity of each pitch? What's the difference in velocity of the pitches in their repertoire? We can look at the kind of, you know, a break uh, uh, that they have uh, for each of the breaking balls, the kind of movement that they have. But then we can also look at where do they locate pitches? What's the sequencing look like? Um, Jeff Zimmerman and i uh who uh, writes it he also writes at Fangraphs, and he and i've he and i've collaborated on a number of things um we're playing around with a new toy and hopefully you're going to have a new version out um called edge percentage uh, and this was just you know again we were both curious about um the degree to which pitchers are able to uh work the edges of the plate and have the majority of their pitches uh, you know from percentage standpoint, landing on those edges, um, and what is the impact? You know, good or bad, from guys that tend to spend more time pitching on the edge versus not pitching on the edge. Um, our initial research showed that the higher your, your edge percentage, um, the lower your ERA, the higher your strikeout rate, lower your walk rate, lower your BAPIP. So basically, more edge percentage equals all things better <laughs> if you're a pitcher.
0: Well, that's interesting. It's interesting about pitching on the edge because I imagine a large part of that too would also be benefited from having a catcher that's really good at. Framing pitches.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and again, it's, it's like anything else, you know, you answer one question and if it's interesting, it leads to, the, to another question, right? So we're finding guys that, that throw on the edges uh, generally tend to do better. But then you, you know, what hopefully we can then do is you add in what we now know about how good catchers are and, and how the difference uh, that catchers make in terms of their framing ability. Uh, to pitchers and saying, well, you know, i i you know, we've got some pitchers that throw on the edge and have better results, and there's going to be pitches on pitchers on average that throw on the edge a lot, but they have worse results. Well, you know, is the difference in those uh, high edge percentage pitchers and their outcomes? Really, just come down to the quality of the catcher. And so, again, the great thing is now we've got that data; we can look at it. Um, I suspect that you're absolutely right. You know, we'll see. You know, pitchers, um, a a number of pitchers on the Rays we found um, were high edge percentage pitchers um, who had a lot of success. But also, think about you know the the Rays and you know their emphasis on catcher defense of late. And so, that's not all that surprising. Both that the they've moved to throwing on the edge more, but also they're finding more success by doing it. Um, You know, it, it was funny. There's um, Dave Cameron wrote a really interesting article and sparked a lot of discussion at Fangraphs the other day about whether or not we should be including, for example, infield fly ball rate in, if not our calculation of FIP, then in war, right? Should should pitchers be getting credit for the fact that if they induce an infield fly ball – 99 percent of the time that's an out right it's just it's almost it, it just as good as a strikeout so should we be giving them credit for it and including it um and there's a long old different discussions that have broken out um one of which broke out um at the book blog and you know, t- you know tom tango's site and there's this whole you know long discussion some really good uh, thoughts there but this issue about catcher framing actually came up and so somebody was saying well you know if if you know, infield fly balls um, are dependent upon the fielders to catch them. It's technically not a you know a fielding independent outcome, so it shouldn't be part of FIP. And and Tom, I think, had a great answer to that, which is, well, technically, K's and walks aren't fielding independent. They require a catcher, and we now know that there is a pretty good variance in terms of a catcher's ability um, to frame properly and to give pitchers an advantage in terms of the strikes called and 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 balls called. So you know, at the end of the day, nothing is completely and utterly independent. I'm excited to look at the data because I would imagine we will find you've got a really great catcher um, you're going to be encouraged to throw the edge more and you're going to have more success on the edges based upon how well they can frame
0: and some things aren't even independent just from umpires I mean walks and strikeouts can greatly be influenced by who's behind the plate calling the game as well
1: oh I know that's a whole other layer of you know it's just, let's just you know keep keep throwing more complexity on umpire <laughs> so, umpire
0: independent pitching
1: oh I know it's, uh, yeah. but, but it's neat though I mean this is what it's amazing to me because i think there's a lot of people that for whatever reason have the wrong or or have an a different view about you know the sabermetric you know community or you know you know baseball analytics people and you know we're 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 so detached from the game um i mean the, the, this is all just this makes the game, in, in my opinion, you know, just that much richer. The ability to really dig into the stuff we've all watched. You know, we've all watched games even growing up. And you know, I remember being a little kid growing up watching the Mets. And after the glories of '86 and then everything that that has come after, and you know, the frustration. You're watching a game, and you know, you know a guy missed a call, or you think your pitcher's getting squeezed all night. Now we can actually go verify that, right? We can actually you know see if some of the hunches that we had about you know good umpires, bad umpires, the impact. Of a tight strike zone or a wide strike zone on the outcome of a game, we can actually go now and see that. You know, that's something we couldn't do even just you know five, six years ago. Really, when you know pitch effects was just really starting to get to gear up and uh, you know, and come into the public sphere. So, you know I mean, to me this is it's fascinating. You, there's always more questions, and you know, it, it, we're talking about just a simple game that that spurs so much research and so many great ideas. And um, you know, I, I don't know, I, I'm rambling a little bit at this point, but to me that's it's all tied. Up in in the the joy of the game, and besides just quote watching it, this is stuff that we get to dig into that years ago. We, you know, growing up, you'd never think you'd have the ability to do, but now we can with uh, with the data and with technology.
0: Yeah, and I was going to ask you this a little late, a little later, but uh, I'll ask you it now. And it's what do you think the mainstream baseball writers or the mainstream baseball community get wrong about the analytical community? I'll answer. I'll give you my answer. What bothers me from them from their point of view when they criticize the analytical community is that there's like an assumption that we don't watch games. <laughs> yeah. i don't know what they're or who they're referring to i'm watching the wbc i'm watching the arizona fall league when that was on after the walled series i can't get enough of games i have mlb tv there are times where i'm watching like five games at once the numbers just enhance my overall enjoyment of the game but i don't know who they're referring to in the analytical community that isn't watching games everyone i follow on twitter everyone i'm i, I see writing articles is about a game they just watched
1: yeah it's just it's it's just it's laziness Frankly, again, I, I think you've got guys for better or for worse who, um, they've, they've got a stereotype in their head. um, and, you know, th- that's what they base their, uh, their evaluation of, you know, quote, who we are. They don't take into account how many people that just happen to be good at statistics. Guess what? They played the game. They played the game at a, a competitive level, in some cases at, at some of the highest competitive levels, more competitive than some of the sports writers. Um, this idea that we don't watch the games. I, again, I mean, you know, uh, during the season, you know, it, uh, and, and this is you know, just anecdotal, but, you know, you go on Twitter. And you know, ton of people that I follow are not just baseball fans, but they're people in the analytics community. And when you're sitting on you know, if I'm watching the Met game and I've got Twitter in the background and just commenting and seeing people have to say, everyone is watching a game. <laughs> it's they're like you said, they've got MLB TV, they've got split screen, they're watching multiple games. And At the same time that we're talking about statistics, you know, back, you know, back two years ago when you actually had a live feed at Brooks Baseball, you could actually go and, you know, and and pull, uh, you know, uh, you know, pull graphics of of pitch location and break and all that, um, you know, in the moment, um, you know, people would be sending around, uh, you know, screen, screen grabs of certain pitches and talking about the pitch itself from a data standpoint, but just just as many tweets and observations where I think the sports writers would kind of consider it more of the traditional just love and appreciation for like, wow, that was a big hit. You know, it's almost as if because we criticize things and and try to dig down and get underneath ideas like clutch and is that something that's, you know, attributable to a player's talent or just a description of a a hit being, you know, uh, important in a certain situation, like, we still think things are we think things are clutch we get emotional about quote big hits just because we don't think it's a repeatable skill doesn't mean it's still not exciting and emotional so it is it's just it's it's just silly and lazy to some extent and and, and it's not every mainstream writer right i mean there are plenty of guys out there you know men and women in the mainstream you know, community who they get that they understand it but for some reason there's and i don't know if it's because people are just trying to get page views or what but you know they just kind of they, they 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 bring up the same old silly stereotypes as if they as if they were ever accurate. And you know, maybe it's just a generational thing. It'll just take some time for that to kind of go away. But I always just chuckle and laugh when they oh we got you guys should watch a game sometime. The the people in the analyst committee probably have watched more baseball than many of those writers who make that claim. And, and, And you know, I don't have data on that, but I got a pretty good hunch that's right.
0: Yeah, I agree. Now, in fairness, let's flip the question. What do we get wrong about them?
1: What do we get wrong about them? I I think to some extent, uh, we probably, well, I don't want to say we, because there's, uh, again, a lot of people that probably don't do this, but um, there may be too much of a a knee-jerk reaction to criticize uh, you know, writers where maybe we think that they haven't fully embraced some of the ideas and some of the findings that we have spent, you know, hours dedicated to and reading and and, and becoming familiar with. Um, or, or we judge some of the mainstream writers maybe as not being as open-minded as maybe they are, but they also recognize the audience that they're writing for, um, you know, and a not all cases that audience has come, you know, uh, has been exposed to uh, as much as you know. Obviously, people in the Metric community have been. Um, so, I think there's, you know, in, it, it, there's going to be knee-jerk reactions and stereotypes. I think on both sides. Um, I think to to a large extent, people in the metric community, when we when we write criticisms of mainstream writing, for better or for worse, and maybe it's just a generational thing. It's sort of the the snarkiness of the internet. Um, where, you know, people of a certain generation, that's not a sign that you're being disrespectful. It's just part of entertainment. It's just part of the writing style. And I think that can come across as, you know, we are we are egotistical, disconnected, you know, uh, group of people. Um, when in some cases it's, you know, it's it's just done tongue in cheek and woven throughout a a more logical argument. And so, you know, sometimes it's a lost in translation kind of thing, I think, but sometimes the conversation can come across that way. And I think we're we're a lot closer to moving beyond that than I think sometimes we we think, but it's still a problem in pockets.
0: One of those pockets was the MVP debate last year, which certainly focused a lot on wins above replacement. Uh, Wins above replacement is, of course, criticized at times because there are multiple versions of it, and sometimes those versions can produce very different results or very different approximations of a player's value. What are your thoughts on war, and what are your criticisms, if any, of the metric?
1: Well, I, like anything else, I, I, I like war. Um, if used properly, and you know, if you don't put you know too much stock in it, um, it from an you know an argument or analysis standpoint, uh, it's really hard, and it has been hard for you know us you know, over a century really to put a a single number on the overall value that a player brings to a a, a team, whether it's a pitcher, or whether it's a, a position player. Um, so the nice thing about war is it solves a problem that we've had for a very long time. Which is how can I put, get a single number that takes into account, for example, a position player what they do at the plate, what they do on the base pass, what they do from a defensive standpoint, and you know, and again, taking into account that every you know positions are going to be different in terms of the demands, the difficulty of those positions. It, that's going to take into account how important their playing time is. So guys that don't don't succumb to injury, that they're adding that much more value over the course of a year, their teams, and allow me to then go ahead and compare. Players at different positions in different leagues with a single number—that's a big deal. Um, you know, it, uh, it, so for all the criticisms of war, and you know, it certainly has you know its warts. It's it's not a perfect metric. That's a pretty big accomplishment, I think, from where you know we you know we, we have been sitting for a century now. Uh, you know, you, you you can't just put all of your faith in war or just use war to end an argument. So you know, uh, people I think tried to make. That MVP debate about war, but the people making it about war and, and really were people that were on the other side of the debate, saying that it should be Cabrera and it shouldn't be Trout. And people that are saying it's Trout are only relying on war and that's a bad metric. Um, you didn't really see writers who were either in the mainstream media who voted for Trout or who were advocating for Trout or, frankly, people in the sabermetric community who were advocating for Trout simply relying on war. They were saying, if we just want to look broadly at a metric that takes all the things these two players have done into account and compare them on equal footing, Trout was the more complete player. But we can can even just ignore war. Let's start breaking down what they do piece by piece. Let's look at their overall offensive production adjusted for park, etc. Let's look at then what trout does in the base pass and how much better he is than Cabrera. That's then look at defense and how much better uh, trout is as a center fielder compared to Cabrera to third baseman. And then when you do that, break it down into just those three elements you can see that you know trout you know was better so it wasn't as if it be it was a war debate because the sabermetric community said this is going to be our uh, our um uh, our our grand finale here this is going to be our main battle and once we win this victory with trout as the uh, you know as the war candidate then we will have won it wasn't that side of the you know of the argument making it it was really sort of a character a mischaracterization by some writers on the mainstream side who turned it into that um, you know I think there's many people that would admit on the state metric side there's lots of flaws with war right um, you know it, again it's it's you know we've got issues with the defensive measurements we haven't gotten defensive uh, advanced dev- defensive metrics right you know, quote unquote, yet Um, they've gotten better um, and we're getting a lot closer to, you know, to, to, you know, better metrics and they're improving all the time. But we know that there's some issues with them, particularly on a single season basis. Um, You always want to look at, you know, multiple years of defensive uh, metric data that are advanced and the people who actually develop those metrics say the same thing. <laughs> Mitchell Lichtman doesn't say, yeah, just look at you know half a season of of user U use Z R ER and <laughs> and that it's totally stable. He'd be like, no, that's silly. I know it's not. I developed it and it's not. So um, you know that's why you 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 have to take everything with a little bit of a grain of salt and you know you want to triangulate. I, I remember during that debate there was people you know I was having this kind of you know argument with folks and they're saying well you know how can you how can you trust WAR because baseball references is different than than fan graphs and the defensive metrics that each site uses both of those are unreliable for a single season. So how can you say that you know how can you just rely on WAR? And I said well one I'm not relying just on WAR but you know if you want to really get down to is Mike Trout a phenomenal center fielder, even with just one season's worth of data, and is he that much better than Miguel Cabrera is at third base? We've, you know, That's the beautiful thing. We don't just have one defensive metric. We have a bunch of them. And if all of them are saying the same thing, more or less— there's some agreement. There's some triangulation there. I think it's a lot easier to say, yeah, you know what? I think Mike Trout's a, 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 a well above average center fielder, and Miguel Cabrera is a well uh, a, a well below average defender at third base. Even though there's different metrics, even though they don't always agree, if they're all agreeing to that extent, then I, I think we can feel pretty comfortable. Um, so for me with with, with WAR uh, yeah do I tend to use the Fangraphs version cuz I right there I do but I also look at baseball reference and I also look at anything else I try to triangulate the stats um if you know both both Fangraphs and and baseball reference had Trout well ahead of anybody else from uh, an overall uh you know WAR standpoint last year it 's not as if you know one site had a number one and one site had a you know fifth or sixth or tenth in the league, so um, you know does it have flaws? Sure, but as long as you 're not just relying on that or applying it in an unthinking way it 's like anything else it can still it 's still very useful.
0: Phil, I want to shift over to some of the work you 've done uh, recently predicting batter regression. How have you identified players likely to fall off from season to season, and who are the hitters most likely to drop this year?
1: Yeah, this was something that just sort of... It started for me as uh, I was just playing around with this idea that, you know, uh, think about a couple of years ago when Adam Dunn signed as a free agent with the White Sox and, uh, you know... uh, people were debating well you know the guy strikes out an awful lot and you know all he does is hit home runs so how valuable is he and you know people in the state metric committee said well he, he is really valuable forget the strikeouts for a second he gets on base a ton and he hits a lot of home runs and then he goes to chicago and just literally collapsed you know it was one of the worst seasons you know i can remember in, in quite some time and i just think
0: his war i think his war was minus three uh, oh they would have won three more games had they never played him.
1: Yeah, Michael Young last year made Adam Dunn look. You know, he he made Michael Young look good <laughs> last year. Um, you know, Michael Young just had a you know you know God bless him had a horrible year last year he 's very gritty though yeah very gritty lots of gr- lots of lots of grit in there um, it, but so the idea was well you know is there are there certain types of of changes that a batter will go through from one season to the next that could signal the following year something could really change and change in a bad way right it's like was there a way to predict adam dunn 's horrible first year in Chicago based upon um, the season before in, in Washington? And you know, so I said, all right, well, you know, this could be neat. This could be interesting. I'm always interested in finding these signal-type statistics that are you know, flags that go up and say, hey, wait a minute, this is something you should check out a little deeper. And so I, I got to playing around and tried to see um, what statistics or combinations of statistics predicted some kind of a, of a collapse like Adam Dunn's collapse. And so uh, I looked at um, you know, what out of you know, over a five-year period um, I was looking for the 25% worst declines in weighted-on-base average from one year to the next. And it, it, the cutoff there, the 25th percentile, essentially, was um, 30 points of, of, of WOBA, or weighted-on-base average. And then I looked at... Um, for similar extreme declines or changes in literally, like every, I think it was almost every statistic process or otherwise that we have at Fangraphs. Um, and again, I was just trying to find something that would signal um, a higher likelihood that a hitter would 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 um, suffer that con- uh, that type of a collapse, you know, in in the in the next year. Uh, so what I came up with was uh, this little you know toy which uh, I called Clifford. So the idea was this this uh, if somebody comes up as a Clifford candidate, it means that they've got a a higher chance than than those that don't of falling off a cliff. Ha ha. I did. You know, you got to be if you have the chance to make your own statistic, (laughs) you got to just you got to give it a silly name. So I said, why not? And and what I found was, is um, if a hitter uh, saw a massive decline in in at least three of four separate statistics, they were a candidate. And those four statistics were their zone contact rate, their speed score, their ultimate base running score, and the percent of uh, forcing fastballs that they saw uh, from pitchers. Uh, And if you were a Clifford candidate, you had 3.4 times the odds of collapsing the next year than players that didn't fall, didn't qualify as a Clifford candidate. Um, When I ran the numbers coming into this season, um, five players popped, uh, as Clifford candidates, only really three, I think, are, are worth talking about, um, two of which are Yankees, uh, one of which is in the DL, uh, unfortunately. Well,
0: those are definitely worth talking about that. Yeah, so
1: it, it was... <laughs> well, so the first one, and I, I talked about this on Clubhouse Confidential um, uh, a couple of weeks back, um, the first one that popped was Robinson Cano, and you know...
0: That's surprising.
1: It, it is, and, and again, for me, it's not to say, like, hey, I'm going to be the guy that predicts that Robin Cano is going to be terrible next year. He he may not be terrible. What, what, what the... Sat- Statistic does is it says he has a fifty three percent chance of seeing a of a, a stark decline in his weighted on base average from last year. Um, now that also means that he's got a forty seven percent chance that he won't uh, have that kind of a decline. But the statistics one of those things where it, it, and I think these types of statistics statistics are helpful. When they raise a flag to something that you would never think. No one's ever, you know, if you look at all the projection systems, nobody was going, oh, Robinson Cano is going to be terrible next year. So the thing for Cano and for most of these hitters that, you know, uh, like uh, Curtis Grandison was the other one in the Yankees and then Delman Young in the Phillies, you know, God help the Phillies if Delman Young gets any worse um, o- offensively, but, you know. <laughs> Ruben Amaro says he's going to play every day and and play in the outfield and play in the outfield. You know again, it's you're a team that's built on pitching and you've got Michael Young at third and Delman Young in the outfield, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um so the 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 one metric that seems to be doing most of the work in predicting these types of big falls um is the zone contact percentage and when you just if when you even if you just look at zone contact percentage and again a really a a, a big decline in zone contact rate is a, di- is a change in, of 1.4% year to year. Now, it doesn't seem like a lot, but from I did some previous work on hitter aging curves with just their plate discipline statistics. And many of those statistics, they don't change year over year. They're very, very stable. And zone contact rate um, usually has a correlation year to year of about 0.8 or 0.82. Um, and if you look at the aging curve, even as players get older, the line almost doesn't budge. You you Your zone contact rate gets a little bit better by a couple of percent percentage points until you're about 25, and then it pretty much levels off. There's not a whole lot of variation. It's not like um, you know, uh, pitchers with their velocity, where your velocity just starts to curve down and trend down almost from the, you know, the day that you started the league. Um, if you just pull out zone contact percentage, uh, and again, you qualify, um, you, you you drop by at least 1.4%, the next year you've got 1.68 times the odds of collapsing. So a little bit less, but a lot of the work is being done by zone contact rate. And guys like Cano and Granderson and Delman Young, they experienced pretty significant declines. I think Cano was somewhere between 5 and 7% decline in his zone contact rate. Granderson was, I think, one of the highest as well. Um, Josh Hamilton's another one. Uh, I wrote about him a little bit today in a follow-up piece to, to Clifford at, at Fangraphs, looking at just those guys that saw really big declines in zone contact. And, you know, Hamilton, you know, he saw his rate Decline by 5%. Um, and I'm, I'm going to write a follow-up, but then I want to dig in and say, well, let's just look at how well uh, these guys are doing um, connecting with fastballs that are in the zone. So forget about, you know, off-speed pitches. We get why you'd miss the, uh, balls in the zone if it's an off-speed pitch. What about just straight fastballs? Um, and Hamilton, it was, it was amazing. I have to check the numbers again, but Hamilton's zone contact rate on pitches above 93 miles an hour in the zone declined from ninety one percent last year uh, or ninety one percent in two thousand and eleven to seventy one percent last year Wow it was huge it was, it was massive and, and he was in and before two thousand and eleven he averaged about i think it was like eighty four or eighty five percent so even if he just took the the average from the previous three or four years, it was still a huge decline um, so uh, my speculation is this is that when you see guys have really big declines in zone contact rate. It could be signaling a couple of things, one of which is it could just be mechanical. You know, guys get funky with their mechanics and they get screwed up and it could take a while to work through it. It could mean that they're injured. So if a guy's got a leg injury or a shoulder injury, you know, could, could be preventing them from catching up with fastballs that are in the zone. Um, but it could also be signaling um, rapid aging. So an accelerated aging where your bat speed is actually declining a lot faster than you would assume it would, um, and again, that's why I say it's not this—it's not a predictive statistics that you know, you I, I know, Cano's going to stink next year. But it's potentially a warning flag to say, well, well, dig a little bit deeper on this guy. You know, I know he's coming off of you know, arguably his best offensive season. Um, but he wouldn't be the first guy that comes off of a great offensive season and all of a sudden doesn't just regress, but just seems to come crashing back to uh, you, know, you know, to the mean.
0: Do you see fluctuations in terms of once a player starts dropping with their chase rate, do they ever go back up or is it just a steady slope down from there?
1: That's that's the next step of the research because from an aging curve standpoint – um, the decl- even when a guy has a couple of you know he he drops down by you know five percent or one percent one year, he tends to kind of come back up and you you don 't really change by more than a percent plus or minus on a year to year basis even as you get older um which is why you know one like with anything else you you know you you, you don 't just you know take this as as settled fact you keep digging and doing research um but that but um that 's why to me when you see these drastic declines. Um, it does make you kind of sit up and, and take notice, and, and, and you should be then digging deeper. So, what I'm w- planning on doing next is exactly that. What is the rebound rate? I did this uh, a similar study with pitchers and their velocity. When you have a really big velocity drop, what are the odds that you will regain that velocity in the next year? Um, and when you, uh, and what I found there was when you do lose at least a mile per hour or more on your on your four seam fastball, that velocity majority of the time does not come back. you may regain a little bit, but you never get to where you were the year before um that does seem to just kind of go away at that point um so it would be so the next step really is to see and it's a great question you know is it just a is it generally just a one year fluctuation or when you are losing that much of your ability to make contact in the zone. Is it really more of a signal of, again, sort of that, that aging or rapid decline in your bat speed? Um, you know, and again, we would have never been able to have this conversation, you know, five years ago, which is just why I get so jazzed about the, the data that we have now we can actually try to potentially predict and, and, and determine if a guy's bat speed is slowing down, even if we don't have, beca- you know, biomechanical measurements of their actual uh, of them actually swinging the bat.
0: Last year, the story in baseball, we hit upon it a little bit earlier, was the MVP debate between Trout and Cabrera. Not only was that the story in baseball, it was the analytical story as well. What do you think the analytical story of baseball in 2013 will be?
1: Uh, I I wish I knew. (laughs) If I could predict that, um, I could probably make a lot more money. Uh, It's interesting. I, I I feel like the war issues isn't going to go away. I I feel like there there will be a hangover, um, to the, the trout Cabrera discussion. Um, uh, Sam Miller wrote a really great piece in ESPN the magazine. Uh, I I think it was actually this month. Um, and I know that that stirred a whole lot of conversation and and, and controversy. I don't necessarily think it was that controversial of a piece, but it, it, you know, nonetheless, it, it, you know, you know, stirred more of that discussion. Um, and rather than kind of putting the whole issue to bed, um, I I think for many, it it just reignited it to some extent. So, um, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if if that discussion continues into this year. Um, I think from an analytical standpoint, um, what I'm already starting to see and wouldn't be surprised at is if we um, have more deeper discussion about um, fielding independent pitching and um, ways that we can uh, incorporate more more things that we thought were fielding independent, but we think pitchers now have more control over. So, you know, as we're getting more data with pitch effects, as we're, um, you know, just, just I think having more discussions and just brainstorming more, um, the idea of incorporating things like infield fly balls potentially as being under a pitcher's control. Um, we know from some work that Mike Fast did when he got his hands on some access to hit effect state a couple of years back um, that pitchers uh, do seem to have some uh, some control around quality of contact based upon their velocity, based upon the location of the pitch. So you know, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we get into this debate more. Not in in a way that says we're going to refute dips and say that it was a silly idea and it, and it never made sense. But like anything else, you refine it and you build upon it. Uh, you know, I, I I my sense is we may have more of that kind of a discussion this year, um, and that will certainly then get translated into uh, how we value different pitchers that are, that are in the league, whether they're young pitchers, whether they're guys that are looking, you know, that are coming up for multi-year contracts. um, You know, that could certainly be an interesting discussion, but uh, outside of that, um, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 there's new stuff that's being thrown out there every day. There's uh, you know new potential data sources that we're getting access to every day. So um, yeah, uh, the WAR debate probably won't go to bed anytime soon. So that you know we'll 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 see where that one goes for the for the for 2013. But um, if I had to guess anything, it would be just even more debate around you know what truly is uh, fielding independent pitching and and what the pitchers have a bit more control over.
0: You've been listening to Bill Petty. You can read Bill's work on Fangraphs and give him a follow on Twitter at Bill Petty. Bill, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks a lot, Ross. It's been great.